Trigger warning. This podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. While the stories of the survivors are meant to be inspiring and informative, listener discretion is advised. If you are struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode. Until this case is solved, like I will just keep making things. So I will keep, I will make a doc if that's an opportunity. I will do whatever. Um, I will continue talking about this. I will continue buying billboards. I will continue doing everything I can until the right person has heard this, realizes that this is a mainstream topic now. And then they go, oh, I've been sitting on this information for a while, and I should probably say something because now everyone's talking about it. Hi, Survivors. I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry, and this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. Yay, another episode. Here we are. Yes. We took a little time off last week, and we're back full force. Yep. And now we have Madison McGee. We had a good time at CrimeCon. I also met Madison at a what it was a show for Lola and Megan from Trust Me Podcast. Yeah. And Megan was like, you need to connect with her. She's going to CrimeCon. She needs a friend. And so I was already texting with Madison beforehand, making friends with her and just giving her a little rundown about CrimeCon, about these true crime festivals going on yeah because she was a first timer there and she you know she just started her podcast and it's taken off she's getting a lot of exposure but of course there's another ohioan involved right oh yeah (laughs) it has to be you always seem to find the people from ohio i really do they we gravitate and the funny thing is when i moved to la everybody i'd be on set with was all from ohio and then for like a decade i didn't meet anyone from ohio and now I meet people from Ohio all the time again. It's it's like a it's like a circadian. It, it comes and it ebbs and flows with the Ohioans in Los Angeles. The Ohio reunion. It is an Ohio reunion. Yeah, but so she's got a really you know, she again has a podcast with purpose. She is trying to find out who killed her dad and and I discovered her because she was giving out these bags at CrimeCon and said, "Did you kill my dad?" Oh yeah. She had a great response. She was so much fun to hang out with and CrimeCon was a lot of fun. Yay, Orlando, Florida. Oh yeah, no, and we talk about it in this episode about the good true crime community in Florida and at CrimeCon. Absolutely. Well, let's get into Madison's story, shall we? Let's get into it. Hi, Madison. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Yes, we are so excited to have you on because we had so much fun at CrimeCon. We made special bags. We did. (laughs) Those bags were, they'll be burned in my brain for forever. Um, from like getting the bags to handing out the bags, the success of the bags, like everything about the bags was a monumental moment. (laughs) (laughs) And we just had a custom make one for me. Yes. So I had bags, um, that said, did you kill my dad on them? And 
which is already, you know, a state, a bold statement. Statement, yeah. But obviously, Tara, she got to rock a one of a kind. Yes. And Madison custom makes bags, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, if you have a story, we will custom make it. Now, it has to incorporate some of those words. <laughs> yes. But CrimeCon was amazing. Yeah, it was my first time. Um, so, that was. No one prepares you for what crime con really is. And I feel like as people with like personal connections to stories, it's even different than, you know, if you're going as like sort of a fan of the genre or a creator in the space, um, it's a very different experience. And it was a lot, but it was like so special, but it was just a lot. Madison, why don't you tell us a little bit about your story? You told us about these bags, but how do the bags relate to your story as a whole? Yeah. So um, in 2002, my dad was murdered in his home in Belmont County, Ohio. He was shot and killed in the doorway. And I was six at the time. So my family, in order to just sort of protect me and this understanding that I would not have had of the circumstances, they told me that my dad had a heart attack and passed away. And so for 10 years, that's the story that I believed. And I processed my dad's death through this lens of a heart attack and lived my life through that lens. And I don't think I realized how much of an identifier it is in the way that your parent dies. Um, so like if your parent dies of cancer, like you sort of take that on and maybe you're really passionate about cancer research and that sort of becomes a part of your life. So my dad dying from a heart attack became this part of my life that I don't really think I understood until I learned at 16 that my dad did not die of a heart attack. And that's when I learned about his murder and the circumstances surrounding the case are very complex and really sort of intricate in the way that there's potentially family involved and information that the police have that they're not investigating. And at 16, I didn't understand those complexities, but it wasn't really until I was like 22, 23 that I started to dive into these case files, look at this from a third party perspective, sort of at a bird's eye view. And I realized that as complex as this is, it also seems relatively easy to dive into because all of the clues are sort of there. And that's when I started looking into my dad's murder. And I've been trying to solve it ever since. And I recently put out a podcast called Ice Cold Case that sort of starts investigating that story and sharing those details to see if any tips will come forward, if anyone has any information. And it's been a really wild ride. So in order for me to get a case out into the world, that doesn't really get a lot of attention. My dad was black. He lived in Ohio. It's a rural, small town. Um, I kind of went a really bold route and I started with the podcast, but then I started, I put out billboards and then I made these bags that say, did you kill my dad? And I love seeing photos of them at the grocery store and like kind of more wholesome places because it really makes a bold statement. 
And I think the bags are perfect. And then starting with the podcast is great. And it's always interesting to talk to someone that works in TV and film, because then you're able to come at it with a different perspective. And you're able to also use some of those skills in finding out what happened. What was it like to find out what happened to your dad at 16? Like, how did you find out? Yeah. So when I was 16, my mom and I were visiting my dad's side of the family and we were visiting my grandmother who lived with her children. So she was older and she was blind. So she needed a lot of help. So she lived with her daughter, who was my dad's sister. We went to visit them and we were spending the afternoon with them and we were leaving And Pearl, my dad's sister's son, also lived there, but he wasn't hanging out with us. And when we were leaving, he walked down the steps, I thought, to say goodbye. So we turn around and we're waving goodbye. And I felt something punch me in the stomach. And I like hurled forward. It knocked the breath out of my lungs. And my mom looks at me like very concerned and she walks me to the car and I can't breathe and I can't explain what it was or what was happening to me, but I saw almost like a movie, Omar standing over my dad's body. Now at the time, I think my dad had a heart attack. So we get in the car and I look at my mom and I said, I think Omar was there when dad had his heart attack and he didn't help him. And my mom freaks out and she's looks really flustered, is super upset. And that's when she says, Madison, I have to tell you something. Your dad didn't have a heart attack. He was actually murdered. And a lot of people think that Omar may have been around or had something to do with it. They're not sure that he did it, but a lot of people think he was there and didn't help him. And so it was so weird that I had that visual in my head, not knowing the context. And that's the day that my mom finally told me. And I wonder if that hadn't happened, if I would ever have known. You know, one of the things that I think about, I mean, first of all, I'm so sorry. And what a way to find out. And what, but what an interesting reaction your body had. But, you know, I can remember going through my trauma and, being in adoptive groups and these kids who didn't realize they were adopted, finally finding out they were adopted and they became very rebellious and very angry. And you've lied to me my whole life, et cetera, et cetera. Did you feel that way? Like, what was your reaction with your mother? Were you angry? Were you just confused? I mean, I'm sure a wave of emotions came cascading down. What were those? Yeah, it was definitely a roller coaster. Um, I was very angry and confused, but I think I was more angry. And I think that has to do with the complexities of my relationship with my mom. But I I really felt like I was purposefully lied to. It didn't really register to me that this was a protective lie. It felt like a malicious lie. Like I looked stupid and I grew up about two and a half hours away from where this happened. So just, I started to think about all the times that I talked to someone about my dad's heart attack and them probably knowing that my dad was murdered and how silly I looked and how naive I seemed. 
and the people that I had empathized with, friends of mine whose parents had had heart attacks, and me sitting with them going, I know what you're going through. I know how you feel. And then thinking, oh my gosh, like I almost felt like, am I a con person? I've been living this lie. And it wasn't, I didn't know, but you know, I was living as if this thing had happened to me that never really happened. And I think that sent me into this really weird spiral. And I was very upset with my mom and my grandmother. And my grandmother is literal angel. And I remember being really, really mad at them for lying to me and making me look stupid and feel stupid. And then I had to start grieving my dad's death all over again through this new lens. And that was really traumatic because it felt like I lost my dad at six and I lost my dad at 16. And those are completely different stages of life. And it was really, really weird. Um, And so... I was also at this pivotal moment in my life where I was about to go to college and it just really wrecked my world for a while. And I think that I still sort of deal with trust issues from a family standpoint because of it. And I really have my guard up with people because I'm always questioning if I'm being told the truth now. And it really did did a number on me for sure. But in that moment, it was a tornado of like, I'm mad, but I'm sad, but I'm confused, but I'm trying to understand why you did this, but I can't figure out why you would have waited this long. Like I probably could have processed this information at like 12 or 13, but why wait this long? I had to ask. I don't know. It just felt really weird. Oh, Ohio. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot, but I commend you for growing up and, and doing something about it. So what came next? Yeah. So in like the craziest turn of events, so this all happened like one month before I graduated high school. So I had sort of in my head thought like, oh, I wanted to make money. So I was like, I'll be a doctor. I don't know. And I was not good at science or school. So this was a silly pipe dream. And I pivoted really fast because then I got really interested in documentary filmmaking and television and production. And how could I tell the world about my dad? Because I I knew that it was not a commercialized story. I couldn't call Dateline about my dad's murder and then jump on it. You know, my dad's not named John Benet Ramsey. No one was really that interested. And so I thought if I could do something to get people to care, maybe I could move the needle. And I was about to go to college. So I was like, great, I'll just study that. I'll just become a documentarian and I'll go to college and I'll learn film and TV and I'll make this thing. And um, I think at the time Netflix was still the disc that you had to like order and it would come in the mail. But I was like, I'll make something that'll be on a DVD, you know, whatever. And that's what I went to school for. And I taught myself how to do that. And I, you know, had some bumps in the road along the way and I freaked out and got a real job for a while and sort of had to pivot and get to this point. But that was sort of the route that I was heading down now because I had learned this. And so I like to think that this all sort of happened at the time that it should have to send me down this route of production and filmmaking and this knowledge um, in order to do what I'm doing now. But it, you know, 
it was life-changing in so many ways. I mean, mentally and emotionally, but also career-wise. I can't imagine if I didn't have that knowledge, like, would I be a doctor now? Like, what would my life look like? And so I do think that it was really life-altering. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what came next. I went to college. I didn't really investigate right away, but I did start trying to accumulate knowledge about like cameras and film and what looks good and sort of starting to do that. And I did that for like fun school projects or comedy things. And then right when I graduated college, I started reaching out to some family members, um, very loosely, just like, hi, I'm your cousin or I'm your niece or whatever. And then right when COVID happened, I, the whole world was shut down and I had nothing to do. And I was like, let me get a hold of those police files. Like I've got the time now to sit down and really look at this. And I have the knowledge now, like I've made a bunch of stuff. I've produced things. I'm kind of at this like really perfect moment to dive into this. And that's what I did. And I got those police files and I never looked back. I mean, it was, all consuming. I'm still like so obsessed with this case. Um, and I, I, it's all I think about now. Was your ultimate goal to produce a documentary or was it to create a podcast or do you kind of swivel? Um, it was always doc. I don't even think a podcast was like a thing when like I first started doing this. Um, so doc was sort of always the goal. And visual, I'm just such a visual person that I could see it in my head before I could really hear it. Um, and I've thought that that would be the way to like get it into the mainstream to get it solved. And it quickly pivoted when I realized that a lot of my family members were not comfortable going on camera. And a lot of people were very nervous about them being a part of a project like this. And I think that speaks to the power of the people who I think were involved, that these people were so afraid to speak up about their own family member's murder that they wouldn't want to help it get solved. And so when I realized that I, I had to pivot and a podcast just made sense. I had a lot of audio interviews. I had been recording myself. Um, so it just kind of was a natural progression to just do a podcast. And it also, there was a lower bar of entry. It's very hard, as you know, to like pitch and sell a documentary. Um, and that takes a lot of time and like, it's, you have to know people and you have to get in the pitch meeting and you have to do all this stuff. But like, you can make a podcast and like, let it do its thing. I mean, not every podcast does well, but you can do it and see what happens. And so that's kind of where I was like, you know what, I'm just going to do it. That's what I can do. And that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. The barrier to entry is very low. Well, I love that journey and definitely podcasts are where it's at, I think. <laughs> this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hey, Tara, as you know, I've been going back to therapy and I absolutely love it. You've been going back to therapy too, right? Oh yeah. I went back to therapy and I went back to BetterHelp as well. 
Did you really? And how's that working out for you? I love it because there's so many therapists to choose from on there. Whatever you need, you could just go through a list. I went through a list the other day, just seeing what they had to offer. There was one with PTSD. There's so many great therapists. I mean, I believe there's over 30,000 different therapists that are on their app and you can communicate with them with video conferencing. You can do messages and communicate with your therapist. It's a very personalized experience, which I really love. Oh, yes. I texted with a therapist the other day and I never tried that out before. And I was like, oh, because I was typing it out with her, processing through it. And usually I get angry when I type stuff out. But I was like, oh, I was able to process it and work through it in a new way. And you know what? In a season of giving, what better gift than to give yourself the gift of therapy? In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Survivor today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Survivor. Uh, you know, right now. And I think after that, like, people will want to do documentaries. They'll be like, oh, and it will be easier to get in the door that way. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that that was also like a really big goal of mine was just a personal goal. And for my dad's sake, like I want to make my dad's case like a mainstream case. Like I want his name to be recognizable when people talk about, you know, cold cases or true crime shows like a dirty John. I want them to think of JC McGee. And in order to do that, the bar of entry being so low for a podcast just made sense to start there, but I definitely don't want it to end there. And I want to continue moving on with like, let's do a doc version. And until this case is solved, like I will just keep making things. So I will keep, I will make a doc. If that's an opportunity, I will do whatever. Um, I will continue talking about this. I will continue buying billboards. I will continue doing everything I can until the right person has heard this realizes that this is a mainstream topic now. And then they go, oh, I've been sitting on this information for a while and I should probably say something because now everyone's talking about it. I like that idea. And I like everything that you're doing to get attention and awareness. And even at CrimeCon, I saw you go around to people and just get information from them and be like, okay, what's your specialty? Okay, I could use that in my case. And I thought that that was so proactive and you're doing all the steps to get there. And, you know, there was a major case the other day that got solved or, you know, conviction, not conviction, but there was like the Tupac case, like, and that was like so long ago, you know? And so it just shows that like cases can there can be movement on it, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. That actually was gave me so much hope. I mean, obviously, Tupac is like a very famous person, but very similar circumstances of like black man, sort of drug crime, gang related, whatever. It's just black people doing what black people do. And like that narrative is so dangerous because that's why these cases don't get solved. And to hear that they arrested someone from a case so long ago in a circumstance very similar to my dad's, it really gave me hope that like people really are starting to care 
And they just need that personal connection to the victim to understand, oh, this is the same as that other case I really like, or that other case I've been following. They just don't have the special connection to the victims because those stories aren't being shared as often. And so that gave me a lot of hope that by doing my podcast and getting people to be really familiar with like, I talk a lot about like who my dad was as a person and what he was like and what he was interested in. And when you build that personal connection, people start to get really invested. And that's what, I mean, people were obviously very invested in Tupac and that's what's helping move this needle. And so it gave me a ton of hope that even after so long, I mean, and there's those one-off cases every now and then where like, they're like, we found a bullet from 1982 and then we solved this case. Like, and those are very few and far between, but each one of those gives me like so much hope that my dad's case could get solved. It was 2002. It wasn't that long ago. There was DNA. There were things available at the time. Like, I feel very hopeful that a lot of the people involved are still alive. Like, there's a chance that this could actually get solved. And yeah, that would that gave me a ton of hope. Um, yeah. So was it gang related? I don't know if there was a specific gang involved. And I don't know the gang landscape in this area, but there are a lot of like local drug dealers. Now, whether they're working together, I'm not sure if they're competitors. It's such a small area. I would imagine that they all have to kind of work together because it's so small. But I do believe that my dad was a confidential informant for the police. And I think that he was a former drug dealer and sort of in the game for a while that I do believe his murder was in some way drug related, whether he testified against someone and they wanted revenge or he was about to testify against someone. I think there was something happening there in the drug world that is the reason my dad was murdered. Wow. Do you think that the police wanted to keep this case like a little hush hush? Yeah, I think that, um, the confidential informant system is very interesting and I'm not super familiar with the intricacies of it, but I do know from my dad's perspective, sort of what was going on there. And basically from my understanding, being a CI is a little bit like having a gun to your head because if you don't comply, you're probably going to jail for something. Like they have something on you. And that's sort of what happened in my dad's case was in the early 90s, he owned a bar that was funneling drugs and they were on to the drug dealer that was associated with those drugs. And they basically went to my dad and they said, if you testify against this guy, you get off scot-free. But if you don't, you're the owner of the bar. So you're liable and you're responsible and you'll go to jail as well. And so my dad testified against him, of course. And so that got him in the system as a CI. And then he would work on and off with the police to sort of get himself out of trouble. Now, it's interesting because a lot of us have probably heard of witness protection. That's not available for CIs unless you are like, a confidential informant at like a super high level. 
And a lot of those people are white people who work for the government or have some sort of intel because they were well-traveled and they overheard something while they were abroad. So those systems are very different. And a lot of confidential informants are Black people in these communities who are trying to sort of button up, stay out of jail, and the police use that to their advantage. And they don't really care what happens as an aftermath to that. So a confidential informant is only confidential until something goes to trial. The moment there's a trial, their identity is revealed and everyone knows they were the confidential informant. So that really? worked, Yeah. So that worked against my dad, obviously, because then everyone knew. Um, and there's this, you know, snitches get stitches. It's tit for tat. And I think that that played against my dad. And I think that the police didn't want that to be well known because it's going to be really hard to recruit confidential informants if your last one just got murdered in his house. And so I think that they tried to brush it under the rug as quickly as possible and not admit that that was the reason because it would impact their other future endeavors. And I actually got a message from a woman who would, had listened to the podcast and grew up in this town. And she was in high school when this happened. And we were talking and I asked her, how long was this discussed? Like, you obviously knew that this happened. There was a murder in your hometown while you were in high school. But how long did you hear about it? And she was like, not very long. Like it was on the news for like a couple nights and then it was never discussed again. And I think that speaks to the power that the police had in that moment. They could have easily gone on the news every night for months saying, we're looking for this car. We're looking for this person. This murder happened in this small town. There's a murderer on the loose. And instead, they brushed it under the rug, acted like it never happened, and just kept moving forward. And I think that's because they didn't want that information out that there was a confidential informant involved. Do you also think that, you know, you're, you're talking about a proactive state with the media, right? I also feel like, you know, now we're in 2023. It feels like there's, you know, obviously that girl went missing in New York and everyone across the country was on it because we have things like TikTok, Instagram, social media, Twitter. Do you also feel like it going on and off the news is just, you know, that's 2002, right? None of this existed then. Do you think that that's also a product of the time and what was going on? Because even with my mother, it wasn't like there was this massive manhunt for my mother. It was because of this persistent little kid, right? And that was 1990. I personally feel like this attention to like, okay, we got to find this person. We got to find out what's happened. It has just blown up in the last several years because of social media. Do you, do you agree with that? 100%. I also think the rise in the true crime genre has sparked a lot of interest in people feeling um, very passionate about, I mean, true crime is like a sport now. Like people watch these documentaries like they watch a football game. They're super into it. Like the guy sitting on the couch going, this is what we need to do. You're not on the team. What are you talking about? And people 
do that with true crime, right? <laughs> well, we need to go out and we need to find, you know, we should be calling. And people do that to me all the time. They're like, well, what we need to do is call this person and this person. And it's like, I love it, but it's like, you're not on the team. What are you talking about? So it's kind of the same. And people treat it like that. And I think that from really, yeah, like the early 90s, I mean, I think about like John Walsh, America's Most Wanted. Um, these shows were really up and coming. And I think they sort of entered the zeitgeist because we were all kids when that was up and coming and now we're adults. So now we're all like, we grew up on this. We love it. Um, very much like I keep making the sports analogy, but like when you're a kid and you're like, I just like the Steelers because my parents like the Steelers. It's like, well, I love true crime because I grew up watching these shows every weekend with my parents. And so I think now it's like, we all feel super invested. I also think um, people are a little bit more society minded. I don't know if that's the right word, but it all, it feels like everyone's trying to help. And sometimes the intention does not match impact, but it does feel like generally speaking, a lot of these people just want to be helpful and want to feel like they're contributing to society and they have really good intentions. And so I think that that mixed with social media and their ability to post, I mean, just like a podcast, they can post anything they want. So if they feel like, they're watching something and they're like, oh, I really want to do something about that. Well, they just have to get on Twitter. And in the nineties, it was like, oh, I'll write a letter to my Congress person. Like, what am I supposed to do about this? Um, and so I think that it's sort of this recycle triangle where people are really interested in this genre. Now they have the ability to type stuff and it go into the zeitgeist immediately and then that shows outlets, media outlets, that there's an audience there. And then it just keeps going. Um, whereas before, maybe people would have been really interested in my dad's case, but there was no way to really measure audience interest. And now it's like you have a proof of concept in five minutes based on how many likes an Instagram post gets. So if it gets a lot of likes, well, let's run that story again. And so, yeah, I think it's sort of all encompassing. Now, you touched on internet sleuthing or sleuthing in general. Do you find that it's helpful to do that? Or do you think that there needs to be some parameters around that? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think that it's really great that people want to be helpful. And sometimes it can be misplaced. Um, however... I've done a pretty good job of like everything goes to like an email. If I get overwhelmed with like DMs, I'll pass them off to someone and then they're able to sort of filter through like, okay, this is something we've already explored. This is someone who just wants to be involved and has no idea what's going on. And this is something that like we haven't really looked into, but like maybe we should check out and sort of having, it's unfortunately the responsibility of like, the creator, victim, survivor to filter through all of that. I don't think it's necessarily bad that people are sending those things in, but it is, I think they should understand too, that it is like a burden on us to like have to go through it all. Um, and so that mutual understanding of like, I mean, sometimes I'll get people who are like, did you get my message? And it's like, yeah, but like, I need a minute, you know? And like, people will message me like, 400 times in a row and I have to like mute them because it's so overwhelming. Um, so I think that there's like a right and a wrong way to like do that. 
But I also do feel the responsibility on my end just to like know my own mental capacity and filter out like what I can and can't look at today, what maybe I should pass off to a friend. Um, Because sometimes there's like that one thing that's in one of those messages that's super helpful. And you're like, okay, if I had to go through 1,000 emails to get this one email that's really going to move the needle, maybe it's worth it. Um, but it is tough because some of these messages are crazy. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> right, Tara? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of nice ones, too. And, you know, it's not to outweigh that, but there is a lot of interesting ones. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough because, yeah, there, and it's the same with like reviews, right? You'll have 500 five star reviews, and you're going to read that one one star review, and that's the one you're going to think about for the rest of the day. And it's the same with me with these messages. I'll get like one email that's like totally off the walls. And I'm like, ah, oh, should I close down this email? Like, I don't know if we should even be getting emails anymore. And it's like, no, but look at all these other ones that were really helpful. Um, and so, yeah, I think you just have to take the bad with the good and have help in filtering those out. But it is it is nice that people care. And it makes me feel like I'm making progress when I get messages like that, even if they're not super helpful, because that tells me like, whoa, like someone who I don't know found my podcast, listened to the whole thing, and now they have a theory. And that's all, that's what I wanted. That's what I, that's why I did this. So. It's a double-edged sword is what you're telling us. For sure. (laughs) Yeah. And I can imagine with a cold case that, you know, they, I think, I just think back to, you know, this Idaho case, for example, they were talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands of tips being called in. You've got like two that are somewhat valid and you got to wade through all this. And then you've got not only the bad tips, but you've got the such outlandish claims that you're like, how can I even, how do I sort through all of this? You know, how do you do that though? I need help. Um, but I have been fortunate that sometimes my friends will step in and sort of filter things out. But for the most part, I read every single thing that is sent to me. And I have to just use my intuition and my gut to sort of decipher what's legitimate and what's not. Sometimes it's easy just based on the context. So I'll go by like, someone reaches out to me and they're from that town and they go into details about, I see this person at the grocery store all the time. And one time I overheard them on the phone talking about this. Okay. That's probably pretty legit. Now, if you're from like Wyoming and you've never been to Ohio in your life and you're calling in that you saw this person in the gas station in your town of 500 people, probably not them. And you're probably like racially profiled same one, but Like I try to just use like context clues to decipher like who's just like really interested in true crime and trying to insert themselves into the narrative and who is like trying to be helpful. And I think you can kind of feel vibes based on like the way that a message is written and the tone of it and how someone is sort of reaching out to you. But sometimes it's harder than others. And sometimes I will just 
freaking look into it. I'm like, all right, was this person ever in Wyoming? I don't know. Let's go see. And so I'll, I'll do the due diligence for sure. Um, just because also I have anxiety. And if I don't, I'll always be like, oh my gosh, what if it was them? Like, what if I'm like brushing off this one message and this person seems a little like they're just like not really knowing what they're talking about. And that's the one thing that's right. So I'll just go through it just to see. But sometimes I get like really strange messages that are just like uncomfortable to read. And I think it's always like the tone of the message. You can tell when someone's like coming at you or when someone's coming to help you. Um, So I, I try to go by that, but it's tough. Yeah, no, we get a lot of interesting messages from people. and But it's it's different in a cold case because you're hoping that that will help you. And with us, with the interesting messages, we're just like, oh, you know, our cases are kind of closed. This is what happened, point blank. And if you think you know what really happened, like, I don't know. But it's it's really interesting how people can have an opinion on it. But there is a lot of support. And like, you know, just mentioning that we were at CrimeCon, have you been wanting to connect with anyone in particular to help you with your case? I was open to help from literally anyone from anywhere. Um, I was really, really fortunate that I got to connect with Gabby Petito's family specifically. Um, and I, the people I was, I would never have expected in a million years to like meet them or talk to them or like even like relate to them at all. Like our, our stories are just vastly different in literally every way. And I met her parents on both sides. So she's got four amazing parents because her parents were divorced and both remarried. And like just really incredible people. And for what they have been through to even provide support to me is like just the wildest experience to know that they've been through this very traumatic thing very recently. Like theirs is much more recent than mine. And the media attention that they got, which I'm sure you can relate to impacting how they're processing this information as well and processing what happened to them. And the fact that they reached out their hand to me to offer support was something that was very unexpected and still really like touches me. I just talked to her mom yesterday and just the most wonderful people who are willing to provide support because they empathize with victims. And I thought that that was so special. It literally gives me chills talking about it because like even you all like knowing you and like being connected with you and being able to text or call you whenever there aren't a lot of people in this space that are doing what we're doing. And that's because it's hard. I wouldn't expect every survivor or every victim to start a podcast. It's not easy. And going back to like the comments and the notes and all the things that people say and do, and I'm sure the Petitos have been through hell and back, it's tough. And so to do that, you kind of form an even closer bond inside of this special bond, right? Like we're at CrimeCon with everyone and that's great. And everyone's supportive. Everyone I met was so kind, even if they weren't directly related to a story, um, welcoming me with open arms to the community. If you want to be on my show, if you need anything, let me know. We know this person and this person and 
just super helpful. But even within that, there's this even smaller group of people who have been directly impacted by this. And I think to connect with them and be offered support because they have, you all have been around, you know, the crime cons for a minute and you know this space a little bit better than me. So to be welcomed in by people like you was really special and something I kind of wasn't expecting because from the outside looking in, I'll be honest, true crime seems a little grimy. Like these people are making ad revenue and they're making money off these stories and they're doing all this stuff. And it's hard to sort of see how is this doing anyone any good? But it is. And I saw it and I witnessed it firsthand. And so, um, yeah, it was it was really special. It was a really special experience. It was really special to us too. And we, we just love the Petito family as well. You know, we connected with um, Joseph and Tara right beforehand. And just, you know, I kind of gave them like, hey, it might be a little crazy there, you know, have lots of self-care. And I got to hear stories about Gabby that were just really cool and amazing. And I wasn't expecting to hear the stories about her when I connected with them. But it just seems like Gabby was such an amazing person. And Joe keeps saying that I'm that I look like Thor, <laughs> which I thought was funny. You know, I was really reticent last year about going to CrimeCon, and I just went as like a regular person because I thought, well, why do people have true crime conventions? That's sort of weird to me. But then I realized with people like yourself and being able to connect with an, not only with you know myself and Tara and other podcasters, but being able to connect with a community that wants to be involved and wants to help you get answers. Like that is an incredible thing that does come about from this. Um, you know, true crime obsession is something that I've been very obsessed with and very interested in as to why people get involved or why people are so consumed with true crime. But I think seeing how people can offer great you know, tips or, 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 or like I lived in Ohio then. I, I have so many people coming out of the woodwork about my father's case, just sharing stories about him or being like, I remember you or I was there at that time. So I can imagine the types of people that probably come out that might have that one little nugget of information that's going to blow the whole thing wide open. Yeah. I mean, it's a com. I mean, that's what I kept telling myself. I was like, this is a conference full of like your target market. Like, Everyone that you want to like dive into your dad's case and look into it and know what Reddit threads to go down and what tiny county in Ohio is being discussed on this thread and, oh, so-and-so knows this PI over here, they're all going to be at CrimeCon. <laughs> so um, that was sort of my like, okay, I got to go and I've got to meet people who actually will care about this case, whether they are a victim as well or they are directly impacted or they just like this stuff they might be willing and able to help me. And that was sort of the the draw for me to sort of make the final decision because I went back and forth for a while. But um, I was like, I really should go um, because this is where those people are going to be. And this is where the people who like the, the helpful tips, this is where those people are going to be. Because no one who's just like, trying to insert themselves in a narrative is like buying a ticket and flying to Orlando and doing all this stuff. This is people who like really care about this stuff. And, um, that, that was really helpful. And they like free bags. Yeah. They love the bags. And you know what? I love them for that. This concludes part one of our two part episode with Madison McGee. 
Can't wait for part two? Please subscribe to the Survivor Squad Patreon to receive exclusive early access to all episodes. On that note, Survivors, I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. We'll see you guys. Bye. The Survivor Squad Podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please consider supporting this program by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Survivor Squad.